Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Today on Open Spaces, legislative freshmen discuss their experiences during this year's session. You know, we get along, we can debate issues civilly and, and you know, respectfully disagree with each other and, and know it's not personal and it's uh, politics. The Wyoming Legislature resolved a major issue of housing inequality this session, all because of one determined citizen. Just a dumb redneck from Wyoming. I mean, somebody was taking money out of my pocket. It's time to fight, you know. I'm just... One University of Wyoming College of Law professor is hoping a study of his will lend facts and sensibility to the immigration debate. Those stories and more are all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. The Wyoming Legislative Session is wrapping up today, and Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck joins me to discuss this year's work. Bob, I think the big topic this session was education. Lawmakers had high hopes of making a dent into the shortfall in education funding, and many also hoped that they'd find some revenues. What happened? Well, the revenue piece is what's holding this legislation up. As we're broadcasting right now, a conference committee is trying to reach a compromise on this issue. It's conferees of the House and Senate. Senate has always wanted to simply cut money out of education funding. The House wanted a mix. They wanted a possibility of a tax. They wanted to shift some reserve money into the $400 million or so shortfall that they have. And then they also wanted to shift what we call a diversion. It's some severance tax money uh, that would have gone into the general fund. They wanted to take that and also put it towards the education shortfall. The Senate wanted nothing to do with that. That's the disagreement right now. This is supposed to be the last day of the legislative session. And so you might guess when you're uh, at this hour now working on that and they're supposed to adjourn at some point, uh, the odds are not great they'll reach a compromise. But there have been discussions behind the scenes, and so there is a possibility. But I know that nobody is happy with this legislation, with the exception of maybe the Senate President Eli Bebout and a couple of others who really wanted cuts. But I think at the end of the day, people may leave either without any legislation passing, which if you think about it, this was supposed to be the education session, so it might be handy to have a bill, so that would be a disappointment for some. And then the second piece of this, of course, is there may only be cuts. The education community will not be happy with that. And we should also point out that'll be very difficult for Speaker Steve Harshman, who, by the way, is a member of the education community. And so he was looking for a more thoughtful approach. So if there's just cuts, he's not going to be happy. So they're giving it the old college try, trying to reach a compromise. You know, they can go till midnight tonight if they have to, to adjourn. And so we'll just all have to wait and see. Revenue really seemed to be a tough sell for education this session. Why is there such strong opposition to that? Well, one of the big things, and we reported on this, there were a lot of people that signed a pledge that said we didn't want to raise any, we aren't going to raise any taxes. So you want to live up to that pledge. And so that's the problem with signing a pledge like that. And I would say the other philosophy is you cut first, 
then you look for revenues. And the argument by those who favored that approach is that K-12 education until last year is not really faced any budget cuts, certainly not of the magnitude that we saw at the University of Wyoming this past year. For those of us locally that look at the Department of Health, really got decimated with budget cuts. Corrections has been looking at some budget cuts. All the other state agencies have had cuts over the years. Education has not. And so there's a lot of people that said, you know, we've, we've done this, we've done as much as we can for you. You need to participate in your own revenue situation, and that's why it's gone the way it has. A couple of high-profile gun bills passed. Why were those so popular? Well, it's, I think they probably would have passed, at least one of these would have passed years ago had it not been for some of the lobbying efforts that were going on behind the scenes, which had gotten a little nasty. And I know people in the Senate uh, were upset that Senator John Schiffer who, who was a chairman of the Judiciary Committee one year when a couple of these things came up, really got attacked. And, uh, in, and in fact, some cases got threatened. Uh, there were other legislators who faced the same thing. And I think that's really why those measures went away. This year, well, first off, the person who used to be the lobbyist for the gun industry, Anthony Bouchard, was in the Senate. You also have a lot of people who were very pro-gun. You know, Senator Kale Case has fought for this legislation for many years. Senator Eli Bebout, Larry Hicks. And you just had maybe the right mix for the first time in a long time in the Senate. House has always supported these measures. The Senate has not. The one I was a little surprised they blanked on was campus carry at the University of Wyoming and community colleges. Uh, I think at the end of the day, they listened to the couple of the colleges and the university who wanted to make a decision on some of these issues themselves. And the one thing I think that maybe concerned some folks is the bill was drafted in such a way that guns could be allowed at football games, basketball. That actually did carry some weight with some people. The school one, again, it's up to your local school board trustees to decide who in the building could conceal carry. That's viewed as a positive bill because some of these remote schools actually came to legislators asking for this legislation. The guns in government meetings, uh, I guess they feel like they're all going to be a lot safer if everybody with concealed carry permits have guns. Are there any bills where their outcomes surprised you? Uh, I would say the criminal justice reform measure, that's one they'd worked on for a very long time. Uh, this is a revised bill, and so I think maybe with all the new legislators in there, that that could be one reason why it went down. But at the end of the day, I think it was money. Uh, that bill had some upfront costs that I think Senate President Eli Bebout did not like. And he just basically put it in his drawer and decided we aren't going to hear that one this year. I think the members of that committee were very disappointed in that. But it'll come back again. Next year might be a tough one, though. That It requires two-thirds vote to get an introduction. So they may have to wait two years before they can revisit this issue. It seemed like going into this session, many thought it would be a conservative legislature. Did you sense that? Yeah, I did. I think you saw that with the gun bills getting through. Had a couple of abortion bills that that sailed without really any uh, debate, without any problem getting through. There was a couple of others that probably had uh, some legs, had they been written maybe a little better. Uh, I think some people didn't want to get too far into the social issue uh, matter this year, and so they didn't hear some other stuff that might have come up. But you really saw it with the budget cuts, in particular on the education bill and, and some of the other bills I mentioned. Bob Beck is Wyoming Public Radio's news director. Thanks so much for your insight on the legislative session. Thank you. Let's change gears here. 
Many Wyoming Republicans are gushing over the vision President Donald Trump laid out in his first address to a joint session of Congress. But critics say it lacked specifics. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington. It had been eight years since a Republican had addressed the nation and the GOP loved what they heard from President Trump, who says the American people are behind him. The chorus became an earthquake and the people turned out by the tens of millions and they were all united by one very simple but crucial demand that America must put its own citizens first because only then can we truly make America great again. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso says he was inspired. I thought it was very aspirational, very forward-looking, and I really liked the way that he tied things to the 250th birthday of our country that's coming you know, in, in nine years. And just talk about, let's look to that future, let's build that future. Most Democrats didn't like the president's address and accuse him of maintaining a partisan campaign-style tone instead of trying to reach across the aisle to forge compromises on Capitol Hill. Barrasso brushes aside their criticisms that the speech was light on substance and heavy on soaring rhetoric. I'm not surprised that Democrats who were still reeling over the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton lost the election would not be uh, feeling the same way about this speech as I do. I thought it was very specific, uh, certainly in terms of focusing on things we need to do to rebuild the country, the infrastructure. It's not just Democrats. Pennsylvania Congressman Charlie Dent has been one of Trump's harshest critics from within the Republican Party. While he thought Trump did offer a new tone, he still wasn't totally won over by the president's agenda. It was more focused and disciplined uh, and somewhat subdued. Uh, it was remarkably uh, uneventful in, yeah. a good, in a good way. <laughs> so, so, but, uh, but it was not, uh, we still didn't get as many specifics at, as we need, but I suspect we're going to be seeing more over the next few weeks. As for Barrasso's signature issue of health care, the president seems to have endorsed Speaker Paul Ryan's plan, which would replace Obamacare's insurance subsidies with tax credits. Barrasso is content to let the House take the lead on the party's effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. Well, we want to see what passes the House. The president has shown, I believe, leadership in talking about uh, the fact that the status quo is not working. Obamacare is collapsing. Insurance around the country is collapsing. People can't afford it or aren't buying it, even with the mandate, because they realize for them personally, it's a bad deal. Democrats are mounting an effort to derail the GOP health plan, which they fear would kick millions of people off Medicaid. Pennsylvania Democratic Senator Bob Casey says he thinks the president has been co-opted by far-right conservatives. The other thing I was hoping he would have said is to say we're, he's going to fulfill his campaign pledge not to block grant Medicaid, which would be devastating for rural hospitals, rural children, and of course uh, uh, individuals with disabilities, but apparently he's embraced this extreme and destructive right-wing block granting of Medicaid. The president's budget proposal of increasing military spending by $54 billion is certainly getting attention. The White House says that money would come from drastically slashing the budget of federal agencies that work on everything from the environment to school lunch programs. Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi is the Senate budget chairman. He says it's too soon to tell if he can support the president's budget because there are a lot of unanswered questions. Until I get to see his budget, and it's way too premature for that. I mean, the guy's only been, his director's only been in for a week. So uh, too early to tell. Environmentalists are worried about the proposed 3,000 staff cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency. 
Enzi says the EPA has hampered energy development in the West, so cuts of that magnitude wouldn't bother him. I know that most of the Wyoming people think that if you reduce the EPA, it'll have a big effect on Wyoming. In a good way. <laughs> yeah, yes, in a good way. The president's official budget will be released in the coming weeks and expect to hear a lot more from Senator Enzi on the details of that plan. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. When we come back, we'll hear about new challenges facing the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. This week, the legislature gave final approval to a bill that will take general fund money away from the Wyoming Game and Fish Department and require them to make up the difference through fee increases. It is just one of a few issues Director Scott Talbot is finding challenging these days. He sat down with me to explain that it is critical that the fees do not lead to a net loss. Shifting uh, away from the general fund and and putting those programs back under our license fee program, uh, that would cover our sage-grouse program, veterinary services, our sensitive species, which is our non-game program, and then uh, probably one of the largest programs is the aquatic invasive species, and, and folks see us at the check stations checking for quagga and zebra mussels, and then um, uh, what's left of um, state management of of wolves. And right now that license fee increase is going to be right at $4.9 million. And that is basically a, a direct switch from uh, general fund to license fee dollars. And as you're well aware, uh, most of that is, is targeted at, at non-resident license fee increases as well. But One of the things that did come up during the legislature, Scott, is that uh, there were some people that were worried that if you raise these fees, you might have people less interested in coming to Wyoming. I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Several years ago, when we went through uh, the license fee proposal, we actually uh, did some surveys to look at what the price point was on on many of the big game licenses in Wyoming, uh, elk, deer, and antelope. And that information came back that, that said that our license fee uh, schedule right now is low enough that they anticipated very little or no decline in the um, the revenue generated by licenses. And if you look at the number of applicants for our licenses over the last three years, it has increased significantly. Uh, I believe in 2014, we were up about 6,000 total applicants. In 2015, we were up by, I believe, just over 8,000 applicants. And this year, we just completed the non-resident elk draw, and uh, we had 2,500 more non-resident applicants this year uh, than we had last year. So license demand in Wyoming continues to to increase, and, and certainly uh, as that happens, the ability to draw a license diminishes to some degree. I'm curious about one other thing, though. When you get general fund money, that's obviously a much more stable source of uh, funding. Any worry at all that this could be a little more volatile, or or do you like the fact that you can maybe, you know, be aggressive and, and maybe even get more money? 
Well, certainly uh, the the issue of general fund for programs is something that we have talked about a long time in the state of Wyoming. And, and prior to 2005, the uh, Wyoming Game and Fish Department received no general fund money. Licensed revenue can increase and, and decrease and fluctuate with things like hard winners and the number of licenses we're able to uh, issue. Certainly the economy in Wyoming uh, has its ups and downs as well, so it's 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 difficult to say which is more stable. Game and Fish Director Scott Talbot chatting with us. Uh, you, you were talking about hunting. I wanted to ask you, I know this is the time of year when you're starting to set some, uh, figure out how many licenses you're going to issue and, and what the quotas are. Had some bad weather in the state this year, and I'm, I'm curious, especially in the western side of the state, if you're anticipating major changes there. Bob, uh, I am anticipating some fairly significant changes, uh, specifically with deer. And uh, we might see some uh, pretty significant losses to antelope as well. Antelope, uh, all of those those species, deer and antelope, are, are highly migratory. Um, we will be doing some uh, winter mortality surveys this spring, right about the time we'll be setting seasons. But it appears that, that the toughest part of the winter is in that, that western portion of Wyoming, and, and deer are certainly uh, very susceptible to that. So we probably will see uh, some reductions in licenses available for hunters in that portion of the state. Which, of course, would affect the bottom line, too. Absolutely. Uh, deer, elk, and antelope licenses uh, are the revenue generators for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. Before I let you go, uh, Senator Brasso, as you well know, and, and some others are looking at the endangered species uh, regulation, the law, and, and seeing what tweaks or changes uh, maybe are needed. I know that you, obviously, <laughs> with wolves and grizzly bears and many other things, have had an opportunity to look at this issue closely kind of curious what kind of changes you'd like to see. From my perspective, and, and having gone through uh, a lot of meetings on grizzly bears and, and wolves specifically, but also looking at, at other species like the black-footed ferret, um, the, some of the changes that would probably be as significant for the states are some administrative changes, allowing uh, uh, additional flexibility with the the 10J provision, uh, similar to what happened with a black-footed ferret, that allows uh, uh, our department, the public, and and landowners uh, some assurances on uh, how we can move forward with the management of species like a black-footed ferret. But um, certainly, um, I feel strongly that that state engagement. Uh, early on in the process when it comes to uh, uh, evaluating petitions uh, to make sure that that the department and the wildlife professionals in the state have the opportunity not only to be engaged in that but to provide their data and there's some some time frames on there um, 90 day findings and those types of things that some tweaks to that would allow a more collaborative process to move forward and and engage the states. Uh, I think if you look at, at the potential listing of wolverines and the response from the western states and and the fact that we were able to sit down at the table early on in that process um, certainly helped facilitate that from a uh, from the state's perspective. In addition to that, I think uh, uh, funding of endangered species is, is critical 
And uh, as you're well aware, the Grizzly Bear in Wyoming is a is a program that costs the state of Wyoming, and those are all license dollars going in to the Grizzly Bear program uh, from sportsmen. And uh, that program is is right at two million dollars uh, a a year for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, and and currently. Um, we're rec- realizing in the neighborhood of about $50,000 a year from the uh, uh, United States Fish and Wildlife Service for uh, Section 6 on that. So um, if, if there could be additional cooperation with the states and the service uh, to coordinate budgets, coordinate funding, and, and work together, I think that would be, uh, from an administrative standpoint, certainly an advantage to uh, uh, communities like ours here in Wyoming. And uh, obviously things change, uh, you know, we get more information, that sort of thing. But one of the things I I heard a lot of the testimony before Senator Barrasso's committee was, you know, having an end target. You might have to adjust it halfway through or something like that, but that just seems to be a real critical piece for a lot of folks that manage wildlife. Um, Certainly there's some changes in science as you learn more and more about populations, but you're well aware of of the wolf situation that Wyoming found itself in, and and the recovery criteria changed multiple times uh, before Governor Meade was was able to uh, uh, sit down with Secretary Salazar and and come to a a resolution of that issue. Um, And so, uh, yes, uh, firmly established, scientifically-based recovery criteria are critical. Scott Talbot, always a pleasure. I thank you very much for your time, and we'll chat with you down the road. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you, Bob, and you have a great day. Dr. Ali Abdullahi knew that he wanted to work with wildlife when he visited the Maasai Mara Reserve in his home country of Kenya. He earned a Ph.D. from the University of Wyoming's Ecology Department and embarked on an effort to save the Hirola, the world's most endangered antelope. Wyoming Public Radio's Alana Elder spoke with Dr. Ali about his work. The Hirola occurs in eastern Kenya, and it has a very small geographic range. And I grew up in that rural setting. Both of my parents were also nomads, so they moved from one point to another. And as a child, I witnessed the species uh, dwindle over time. And, you know, because the area is so remote, most foreign scientists will shy away from this region. And uh, there was always a gap, and I wanted to fill that gap. And were you able to get close to them as a boy? Uh, yes, 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 yes. They always stay close to the villages and also close to our livestock. Although they're really shy, we could always sight them when we had the cattle. They eat the same grass as our cattle will eat. There's only one ethnic group that inhabits this part of Kenya, and that is the Somalis. They have a strong traditions and also have a high respect for Hirola because they believe that when Hirola is doing well, also their cattle will do well, given that they depend on the same grasslands. But I think this relationship has worked against Hirola, in which people continue to increase their livestock and population is also increasing and eventually displaced much of Hirola through overgrazing mm-hmm. of the landscape. Yes, so you've noticed them decline over time. So what other than competition with livestock are the biggest threats to the animals? 
So the the biggest threat is actually habitat loss, and this has resulted from a number of things that all have to do with humans, one being historically there are about 5,000 elephants in that region. So by the late 1970s, people have poached all the elephants, and elephants typically maintain grasslands for herola and livestock. And once elephants have been eliminated from the system, trees have encroached into these areas, and all the grasslands have been converted into woodlands. Secondly, we also think that people have stopped use of fire that used to create a balance between trees and grasses. Finally, climate change has been experienced in the entire Horn of Africa region, and these drying conditions favor trees over grasses. So there's a massive tree encroachment in this area at the expense of grasslands that both cattle and herola depend on. So this did not just affect herola alone, but also affected the livelihoods of the local people who are living in this area. What does the world stand to lose if the herola isn't conserved? So this is the only member of the genus Butrigus. So herola is the only representative of this genus. If we lose herola, we are not just losing species, we are losing all the evolutionary information that comes with an entire genus. We have less than 500 individuals remaining globally. So we are doing every effort to make sure they persist and once again flourish in their natural range. I'm wondering if your background as a Somali has helped you to navigate some of the social aspects of the conservation of these animals. Yeah, this has worked to my advantage in many ways because I think in the 1960s when the government realized this was a unique species occurring in this remote area, the first attempt they did was to translocate individuals into an area outside the geographic range. So this somehow created hostility between the local groups and the Kenyan government. Given that I was a local and wanted to work on these species, I got a lot of support from the local groups. They will work with me hand in hand and they will also be interested to promote more of our conservation on the ground rather than translocate individuals to other places. After everything that you've learned, what would be your advice to anyone who's trying to protect a species? Don't get tired, <laughs> particularly when you're dealing with a critically endangered species. There's a lot of politics around it. So persistence is really important and also just keeping an eye on the main price, which is really understanding the issue and also making others understand the issue. It is a multi-stakeholder initiative, so it doesn't work as an individual. You have to have everybody else on board, you know, scientists, managers, communities. So talk to everybody, and it will take some time. But uh, we provide uh, employment uh, to local scouts and also teach them other opportunities that they will utilize from conservation and the work we are doing. So many people are changing attitude about you know, conservation and also see it as a alternative land use. And that somehow has allowed the integration of conservation with some of the things they do. And these communities do not just need economic incentive, they also have cultural attachment to some of these animals and understand the ecological roles of some of this wildlife. So it doesn't take a lot of time to convince people that conservation is important or environment is important. You know, this planet belongs to all of us, and we have 
responsibility to teach each other, also share knowledge and provide opportunities to those who are disadvantaged. I am a beneficiary of internationalizing education and I got that opportunity and came to UW to study ecology and also help the species that was in the verge of extinction that people even did not understand what the problem was. And I'm taking back this knowledge to share with an entire country and formulate policies that will save uh, species at a national level. I, I just want to take this opportunity to thank all those people who, in one way or the other, helped with the conservation of flora. And I thank you for the opportunity to have this interview as well. Coming up, we'll hear from a UW law professor trying to change the tone of the debate around immigration. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. President Donald Trump campaigned on a promise to enact stricter immigration policies. And the topic of reform has remained a common thread under the new administration. University of Wyoming College of Law professor Noah Novogradsky is leading a team of law students conducting an economic impact study of the contributions immigrant workers make to Teton County. Novogradsky tells Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen the intent of the study is to uncover details that are otherwise lost in census data in order to encourage evidence-based debate and policy. Immigration is politically divisive and explosive, and it's not becoming any less divisive under the Trump administration. One of our objectives with this project is to identify something that a large majority of Wyoming citizens can get behind. We want to highlight those contributions so that we can have an informed debate about immigration and not be sidetracked by the political, nasty, and divisive rhetoric. For the study, who who exactly are you speaking with? We're speaking with people in four categories. First, folks who work in the service, hospitality, and tourism sectors. We all know that Immigrant labor makes Teton County tick and drives the local economy. So the first category are employers and employees in the service, hospitality, and tourism sectors. Uh, The second category are small business owners, um, immigrants who have come to this corner of the state, to uh, Teton County, and opened up their own businesses. The third category of people are uh, students, uh, international students who come here for uh, studies and then get a valid social security number to work uh, for up to for a period of time after graduation. And the fourth category are uh, wealthy investors, um, foreign-born investors who are buying up property and investing often big money into the the local economy. So while trying to have conversations with these workers, do you ever come against challenges as far as um, someone being unwilling to speak with you, perhaps someone who is undocumented? Yes, but uh, that's not unique to us. We all know that there are 
some undocumented immigrants in uh, working in Wyoming. And my sense is that the census data undercounts the number of undocumented workers contributing to the economy. We have the ability to identify individual stories and add a human touch to the statistical picture. Within the category of immigrants, there are U.S. citizens, uh, green card holders, lawful permanent residents. There are people here who are on the temporary visas, and there are undocumented folks. Sometimes there are single families with some people who are documented and some people who are undocumented. In his recent address to Congress, President Trump mentioned changing from a a system of lower-skilled immigration to what he called a merit-based system. And I wanted to ask, do do you see that as being something likely or even possible? And what would that mean for, you know, a community like Teton County? The very notion of a merit-based system is uh, highly contested. We should all be concerned about impact of illegal immigration and the exploitation of workers in a system that tends to reward under-the-table work. And right now, the country and economy as a whole benefits from less-skilled and highly-skilled immigration of a variety of statuses. What is obvious is that we are in a race for global talent for more highly-skilled immigrants. I think that is the part of the immigration debate that is easiest to fix. Um, We could certainly increase the issuance of H-1B visas and highly skilled worker visas, and Democrats and Republicans alike would support an overhaul of that part of our immigration law. The more contested parts of of the immigration system involve refugees, and undocumented workers, most of whom are in uh, less skilled sectors. Ignoring the, those big contentious issues in favor of the easier to resolve um, concerns is, is politically attractive, but unlikely to move the needle on the immigration debate. I'll say something else, too, which is that uh, the Trump administration stepped up enforcement of some aspects of existing immigration laws serve to send a message. And that message is being heard and creating a great deal of fear and anxiety in some immigrant communities. Who is not being affected by this? Big business. We are not seeing raids at corporate headquarters. We are not seeing stepped-up enforcement against the employers who, uh, in many cases, knowingly or conveniently accept documentation from workers that that look suspect or with a little digging would prove to be false papers. And in this climate, we are seeing enforcement directed at some people and not others. I'm hoping that our report on the contributions of immigrants to the economy in different sectors allows us to have a knowledgeable and informed debate, and that takes what we think we know instinctually and provides a factual basis. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day. That was UW Law Professor Noah Novogrodsky speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen about a study he's leading on economic contributions of immigrant workers in Teton County. 
Across the United States, mobile and manufactured homeowners are without the same access to the American dream as their neighbors with site-built homes. That's because mobile homes are often classified as personal property, like a car or a boat. And converting them to real property, like a house, can be complicated. As a result, mainstream mortgages are out of reach. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Tennessee Watson reports, in Wyoming, one feisty homeowner decided to take action. I'm sitting with Jason Halverson at the Wyoming State Legislature. He's here to watch Governor Matt Mead sign a piece of legislation that will change his fate. Are you nervous? No, this is the, this is the end. The nervousness was nine months ago when I got told no at the bank. Representative Tyler Lindholm presents the bill and introduces the governor to Halverson. He brought me this issue, and this has been by far the hardest piece of legislation I've ever worked on. And I'm really, really glad we're, we're closing up this hole for individuals like Jason. Thank you, Representative. Jason, thanks for bringing it to our attention. I appreciate it very much. House and Bold Act 62, House Bill... It took about five seconds for the governor to sign the bill into law. But for Halverson, this marks the end of a long fight to be able to refinance his home because of an oversight in Wyoming's title law. How do you feel now? Relieved. A week before the signing, while the bill was still working its way through the legislature, I met up with Halverson. He's about 6'4", with a big old beard. Several years ago, Halverson was offered a job as a mechanic he couldn't refuse. So good that his wife and two kids traded in their big fancy home in Gillette for a double wide in Wheatland. I made seven trips down here in two weeks to find homes. I looked at homes, looked at homes, looked at homes. This was the only one that would even remotely fit what I needed. And I knew it wasn't perfect, but the price was okay and I could make it work. It doesn't look like much on the outside, but it's nicely finished on the inside. He gives me a tour of all the work he's done. The master bathroom, the kitchen, the dining room, the second bathroom, and the laundry His real pride and joy is the garage. This building stopped at that wall. So everything from that wall this way is new. All of the concrete's new. Now this is a disaster area because I'm still in the remodel process, but my shop. And after making all those upgrades, Halverson wanted to refinance. At the time, interest rates were good, and he knew that if he shortened the life of his mortgage, he'd save himself about 50000 bucks in the long run. So he went to see banker Georgian Martinez. But Martinez couldn't help Halverson because he didn't have the manufacturer's statement of origin for his manufactured home. It's kind of like a flimsy little piece of paper, and people don't think it's important. So they don't realize that I mean, it's a very important piece of paper that needs to be taken down to the courthouse. Which the previous owner never did. Halverson reached out to him, but the guy had since passed away. He went to the county clerk to get a duplicate, and the clerk told him it was not possible. To give you some context for the frustration, imagine you've just won a free vacation to a beach, say, in Mexico. When you go to apply for a passport, you discover that your mom has lost your birth certificate. And then the government says... Sorry, we don't have a law that allows you to get a new one. Martinez says Halverson is not her first customer to hit this obstacle. You know, I would say in the customers that I've helped, I might see it like 50% of the time. Martinez can still get mobile homeowners financing even without all the paperwork, but the options have higher unfixed rates. She says at that point, a lot of people just walk away. 
But Jason, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't accept no for an answer. Most people would have just stopped and gave up. You know, when you get to those government issues and you're like, well, what am I going to do? There's nothing I can do. He doesn't accept that. You know, he just keeps going. So after a no at the bank and a no at the county clerk's office, his next stop was his coworker, Tyler Lindholm, who happens to be a representative in the Wyoming state legislature. He brought me this situation one time during lunch break and said, hey, this is happening. Can we fix this? And that started all of this. And when Representative Lindholm looked into it, he found that there were some counties that would reissue titles and others, like Platt County, where Halverson lives, that would not. He realized this was a much bigger issue of legal inequality. I mean, you've stranded an entire class of people from being able to uh, obtain a loan, which that's not, uh, that's not fair, that's not, uh, that's not right, and that's why I'm, I'm really happy this is getting done. This is not just an issue facing Wyoming. 18 million Americans live in manufactured housing. It's 15% of the housing stock for rural Americans. And there's no consistency in the way states handle titling laws. That's according to Doug Ryan, director of affordable home ownership at the Corporation for Enterprise Development. He says Wyoming's House Bill 56 is important right now for the whole country. Affordable housing is in a crisis in many markets across the country. Manufactured housing or mobile homes are a very inexpensive alternative. And that's why states really need to be more creative and more aggressive in ensuring that these uh, types of homes are truly part of the, the housing system. New Hampshire, Vermont, and Oregon have the most favorable titling laws, but most states are somewhere in between, like Wyoming. Halverson is proud he took his fight all the way to the governor's desk. But he's not convinced that Wyoming's new law will cure the problem. He says it will only help homeowners if... If they're willing to dig into the law to find that they can do this to get out of it. (laughs) Halverson cautions that not all county clerks will go out of their way to inform mobile homeowners that they can now get titles reissued. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Early in the Wyoming legislative session, we heard from some new lawmakers about what they were expecting. With the legislature ending its 40-day session, Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck caught up with some of the freshmen and found that they have a healthy respect for the process, but leave with some disappointments. Few people had a bigger upset victory during the election season than Bo Bightman. The representative defeated the presumptive Speaker of the House, Rosie Berger. That inspired him to work to get some languishing issues resolved. Bightman notes that he and other newcomers helped the more veteran conservative lawmakers to finally get some gun and abortion issues through the legislature. We had some momentum behind us, you know, from the people. We kind of had a mandate from the people, and I think that helped push a lot of these bills that hadn't seen the light of day in a while, in a long time kind of come around. But he says there were disappointments. The biggest for him was the failure of the criminal justice reform measure. Being non-judiciary, I thought that bill was good to go. It needs to happen. You know, we've got to get it done. I was a co-sponsor on the severance tax for coal production. I think coal's hurting right now. I don't see why they need to be paying 1.5% more than oil and gas. Fellow Representative Jamie Flitner had high hopes for the House version of the education funding bill. I was hoping for a lot more unity, and I was really hoping that we would have found some tangible solutions and also begun a clear conversation that would have allowed us to find a solution. And right now I feel like all the work that we did the first weeks of the legislature were really for naught. 
But Senator Anthony Bouchard says getting his feet wet in a tough funding debate was actually a good thing. He says he and other freshmen will be more prepared in the future. But it gives, and I hope it gives the new legislators uh, that have come in, I hope they have an opportunity to reflect on it so when they come back for a budget session, because it's going to be the same animal all over again. Bouchard was not an unfamiliar figure among legislators. He was the leader of a very aggressive gun lobby whose methods at times were questioned. Bouchard was not sure how he'd be accepted. Understand, I was in a little bit different position because I I was a lobbyist that pushed really hard on the outside, and I had a few uh, fences to mend. And once we did, it was great. Senator Lisa Anselmi Dalton says the days were long, and sometimes the nights were longer. Some things will really affect me. I'll go home at night and start thinking that maybe I should have done something differently, or I'll start worrying about a vote and start researching it and actually driving my husband crazy by asking his opinion and trying to worry about it a little bit too much. But I think that's part of the process. Senator Tara Nethercott says explaining a difficult vote was new. Maybe explaining why to the constituency, why those decisions are made, finding the time to do that in a meaningful and thoughtful way, knowing that there's much more to the issue than just the headline, that there's a lot of depth and a lot of substance that goes into many of these decisions. Nethercon is someone who likes to go to bed early, but she says that was very difficult. The Cheyenne Republican says she was impressed with how hard everyone has to work. I had a sense for that before, but now I have really a true appreciation for what those long hours really look like, the significance of what it is that we're doing, how poor decisions are made when we get tired, and how we have to fix those on the fly. While the positives and disappointments vary, the one thing lawmakers all agree on is the camaraderie. Representative Bo Beitman says he developed a great relationship with Democrats who see the world much differently. You know, we get along, we can debate issues civilly and, and you know, respectfully disagree with each other and, and know it's not personal and it's uh, politics. That's, that's a breath of fresh air in today's politics. In other words, this isn't Congress. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Ahead, we'll wrap up the show with another installment of our series on civil discourse, I Respectfully Disagree. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Last year, after intense debate, the city of Cheyenne adopted an anti-discrimination ordinance to protect members of the LGBT community. And in this legislative session, lawmakers have tried and failed to pass state laws on both sides of that issue. In the midst of all that, though, an unlikely friendship sprouted up. As part of her series, I Respectfully Disagree, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards sat down with the legislative liaison for Cheyenne's Holy Trinity Church, Deacon Mike Lehman, and Wyoming Equality's Sarah Burlingame. Maybe you can just tell me the story of how you guys met and, and kind of started your conversation. <laughs> so Sarah had contacted me, and I was, uh, this was at the last session, general, yeah. or the budget session. Budget, yeah. And contacted, called me and said, you know, I think it's important that we establish uh, dialogue. And um, this, of course, is something that I, I, I preach about in my own parish, at Holy Trinity Parish. But... It, I've told her before, I was kind of like, oh, 
okay, I got to start walking the walk here too. And this is going to be very uh, unnerving, unsettling, and difficult. Um, but I brought you coffee. She, well, yeah, she brought me coffee. So. And you can't meet Sarah for five minutes and go, she's just got a bubbly, funny personality. And uh, she used it against me sometimes. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, it was, uh, I think there's a temptation to just sort of immediately focus on the differences. And we, did, we don't do that. I have a, I have a professional relationship um, with Deacon Lehman, but he's also my friend. And so I think you can kind of take your, your general practices that like you wouldn't let someone talk about your friend in a way that disregarded their humanity. You know, I myself can disagree all day long with some of the positions that he takes. Um, but this sort of wholesale, like who he is, is um, unacceptable or what he represents is something that just needs to be fought against. Um, I don't believe that. And uh, I feel like I maintain really strong boundaries around not letting folks who have opposition to some of these ideas and, you know, support or non-support of non-discrimination or of marriage or, you know, whatever it is, that's all fair game. <laughs> and we go hard at that. <laughs> when that resolution went to vote, what happened? And how did you guys respond in your relationship? Because then there is like a moment where something happened and it either was the thing that you wanted to happen or it was the thing mm -hmm. that you wanted yeah. to happen. So can you kind of, it, it's going to come down sometimes like that. Yeah. It's got to. I, I texted Deacon Lehman because he'd left because it went super late. and They had written in a religious clause. It's not a clause, is it, when it's, an, when it's not an ordinance? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it was a feel-good yeah. statement that said, we recognize that people have a religious conscience. And we said, sure, they do. <laughs> Great. And, but it, and it passed. And it, and it passed. I think just organically over time, like whether it's something that lands on my side or on the diocese side, I think we meet up for a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And that like just knowing that I could still have a cup of coffee, right. even if like I'm really mad at him or he's really bad at me, <laughs> like we can still have a cup of coffee. But I sometimes think like it maybe wouldn't work at all if we didn't laugh at each other's jokes. <laughs> And, um, well, except for when I was relying on it. So. <laughs> I, I laughed, but it was mostly in horror. <laughs> because Jigan Lehman was uh, testifying in front of uh, a committee. <laughs> they were not having it. I, I tried to test the tension because the tension was, was pretty rough. This was the one that we wanted that died. Employment, yeah. employment anti-discrimination. And um, it was... It was Small room, actually not very many folks there, tense. And my sort of natural inclination is to try and break the tension a little bit. <laughs> but when you, when you try that and it doesn't work, it just re reaffirms how much tension there is. Yeah. And yeah. it was probably the most awkward, uh, <laughs> uncomfortable moment I've ever had. And, um, and, uh, and my friend, I was relying on a courtesy laugh, but it was silence over there. Even, even Sarah, you didn't even pull No, I mean, I, it, <laughs> I stifled a giggle because there was a long pause. And I was, I, it's funny, because we're both aware that there is so much, like, outside perspective that is a little bit performative that people 
expect us to not like one another or expect us to have tension with each other. It was interesting. We went on from there and listened to the bill, but it died. And I can say, and I texted Sarah after that because I could see like her frustration and disappointment after that. That He's being yes. very generous in that uh, characterization. <laughs> there were tears. There were tears. Yeah. But then I, I obviously felt a sense of relief because of, you know, the position that I feel very strongly about. But it, there was not a sense of, like, rejoicing because of our, our friendship and, and recognizing to, that to her, that was very important. Yeah. But. Do you guys have any advice for people? You know, I mean, this is just such divisive times. And people have kind of lost the knack of, of carrying on a relationship like you guys have. I think I would motivate them a little bit by saying it's not an option anymore. Mm. If we want to pass anything on to our children and grandchildren, we have to do this. Um, but we're stuck with the reality that for generations we've been told you shouldn't, shouldn't talk politics or religion with people. You might, might offend somebody or ruin a relationship, and that's always a danger. And to say, you know what, I've got this friend that I, I have a sense that maybe we disagree. Um, is it okay if we talk about some of these difficult issues and will you be a forgiving partner? Mm. And recognizing that I'm going to say something sometimes that may come off wrong. Will you, will you give me that, uh, that forgiveness? And I promise to do the same thing for you. Um, I think if we give each other a little bit of slack, then we can actually get better at this. Because right now, we're just not very good at it. Because we haven't practiced. Yeah. Sarah? I think, um, if I'm honest... It was after a few months of conversation that uh, Deacon Lehman said he was going to be preaching at Holy Trinity, and he said in the homily, like, we're probably not going to support, you know, non-discrimination. Like, that was there, too. But he also said we haven't welcomed our LGBT brothers and sisters into a gospel of love. And I think hearing my community's name spoken, and spoken with love, and not with contempt, that it just opened this door for me that, like, I am so grateful for it. I'm so grateful. I think that there are people for whom that will change their life, their relationship to their, their own worth and value is going to be changed from having heard him speak those words. And they're words that only he can speak. I, I can't, you know. And I, I think rather than meet them with the, the resentment for what they're not doing, if we can... Um, begin with some gratitude for, you know, what, what they are doing that goes a long way. And, and coffee and laughing at each other's jokes. <laughs> like, I, and for Mormons, I mean cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys both so much for sitting down with me and sharing this. Sure. Thank Thanks you. for coming over the hill, Melody. Sure. <laughs> that was Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards speaking with legislative liaison Deacon Mike Lehman and Wyoming Equality Communications Director Sarah Burlingame. If you have been engaging in civil discourse and are willing to share your conversation, let us know. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.